Welcome to Tax Justice Warriors, a podcast that celebrates the work of low-income taxpayer clinics and talks about issues related to tax news. I'm your host, Omid Farouzi, Professor of Practice and Director of the Low-Income Taxpayer Clinic at Temple Law School. So we're in a series right now in Tax Justice Warriors here of interviews that I conducted both of colleagues and of students of mine at the Temple Law LITC. This episode will be a recording of an interview that I did with Lisa Spiro, the executive director of the Cal Poly Low Income Taxpayer Clinic. This interview was conducted during the annual Low Income Taxpayer Clinics Conference in Washington, D.C. in December 2023. Lisa, welcome to the Thank podcast. You. Thank you. Nice to be here. Thank you. So you've been quite involved in this conference so far this week. Tell us about what kind of activities you've been involved in in this conference and what you've enjoyed so far. Okay. Well, it started, I guess, Monday with the ABA section having their pro bono CLE program. And I was asked to... Um, we did something different this year where we did a um, trial practice skills for opening statements. And initially they asked me to be the MC for the final portion because in the first portion we had experts talk about opening statements, then we had the groups prepare, and then I was supposed to be MC. And I think it went very well because I know originally we were concerned we might not get people willing mm-hmm. to volunteer. And in fact, we had every group put up a volunteer and they all did an amazing job. So that was, I guess, even pre-conference activities. And then yesterday I did run the um, birds of a feather, stick together, or flock together, I think, the um, support, I kind of call it the support panel for all the academic low-income taxpayer clinics. And then today I had to speak about the California LITC network, which I started and kind of loosely run. Um, and then tomorrow I'm hosting our California network as having a luncheon that I'm going to be hosting. So busy week. Yeah, you, it sounds like you're very busy. Well, I enjoyed yeah. the I enjoyed the uh, birds of a feather uh, group and I enjoyed the the ABA workshop as well doing the opening statements. Now, have, have you actually uh, ever gone to trial in the tax court? No, I have not. So it's um and we would really like to, especially my students. It's kind of, you know, it's always a good thing for our client when we get mm-hmm. them everything they want, but sometimes there's a little disappointment. <laughs> I've, right. I've had students say, but can't we still go to trial? Yeah. And I have to say, no, we can only do worse at trial. <laughs> We've gotten everything we want. So I think that's the nature of the tax court cases, but I would, I show up at calendar calls, so sometimes I've assisted with trials, but none of the cases that we're actually handling has ever gone to trial in the almost, I guess, 11 years I've been doing this. So now let's go back to uh, before you started at the LITC. So before that, uh, where were you in your career? When did you start practicing and, and, and what all kind of work did you do before all of that? Yeah, so when I first graduated from law school, I did a clerkship on the 10th Circuit, which was wonderful and amazing. I was actually in um, Wyoming. Cheyenne, Wyoming is where my judges was headquartered and we went to Denver, which was fun. From there, I actually came to the honors program at Department of Justice, and my office was just four blocks from where we're seated right now, which is fun for me to, to go back and remember being a, a new attorney uh, <laughs> just starting out. And I was in the commercial litigation branch, corporate finance section. I did have cases that had tax elements, but we didn't handle those. Usually we had a tax attorney that would consult. I was under Janet Reno during Bill Clinton's years, and my area focused a lot on Medicare fraud. So I did a lot of bankruptcy hearings and things things along those lines. 
and I'm originally from the central coast of California though. So I was here for a while, loved it, loved DOJ, loved DC, but then when I started a family, had my daughter, wanted to return to California to raise her, and so at that point, moved back to the central coast of California. I started teaching at Cal Poly um, in their business college, teaching everything from regulatory law, international business law, I teach in the MBA program, and I was there for about 10 years when they opened a clinic. And they asked me to run it, and I said no. Oh. <laughs> and somebody else ran it, and the person didn't work out. They asked me to run it again, and I said no, <laughs> and hired somebody else. And she quit in the middle of the term um, in October, and they asked me to step in for the remainder, and I did because I'm a team player, and they said, you know, we have students in here who aren't going to graduate if we don't get a lawyer to oversee them. So I stepped in, and that was, you know, 11 years ago, and I'm, and I'm still there. So. Wow. So why, why were you, if I may ask, why were you resistant initially to running the clinic? Well, to be honest, I took one tax law class in law school, and it was my least favorite class in law school. Didn't like it. Don't like numbers. Don't like math. Uh, so I really had no interest in running a tax clinic. Uh, but then when I got in there, and I saw it's a social justice program is what it is. And I became very passionate about the issues and all the way that um, social justice is done through the tax code and then the ability to help this really unrepresented community. Because I had always had a passion for, um, for helping um, underserved communities. And you know, I went, I turned down jobs at law firms to go to the government. So I was always, being about law was to me about always trying to really, it sounds hokey, but about trying to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. and I got into the clinic and I saw an opportunity to do that. I love also the ability to work with students so closely because when I was teaching my classes, typically 40, 60, I even had classes with 200 students, I didn't really get to know them very well. And then in the tax clinic, I have 15 students and I really get to know them and mentor them and developing you know, long-lasting relationships with them. That seems like a lot. I, I only have eight students at max. Fifteen, is that for the semester or for a whole year? It is for a quarter. It is for ten weeks. Oh, wow. Yeah, because okay. I'm not, I don't have law students. I'm in a business school. I have fourth-year accounting students. So we don't have, I think that the ABA puts restrictions on law schools. For We don't have that. The university would love it if I had more students. <laughs> they would <laughs> love it if I, I had 22 one quarter and... It was way too much, um, so we negotiated. They wanted 22, I wanted eight or nine, so I take 15. Wow. But it's a very um, impacted program, so they get on a waiting list to get into my class, and like right now, I'm, they have to reach out at least six, nine, 12 months in advance to get into my class, so. So the students that you have had, have they kind of gone on, have any of them gone on to become tax controversy lawyers or are they mostly going into accounting because right. that's where there are right. and, okay. Most of them become CPAs. I would say 90% of them become CPAs. I do have three students right now in law school, <laughs> all different years. I have a 1L, a 2L, and a 3L, mm -hmm. although I am not sure that they're actually going to do tax controversy work. I think some of them might do other types of law, but it's, it's exciting for me because we don't, most of the pre-law students aren't in the accounting <laughs> department at the business college there in, you know, the poli-sci or one of the pre-law majors at a different part of campus. But, 
but I do have have some that show an interest. So. I see. And what are some of the, if, if there are at least a couple high-profile notable cases that you've had at the clinic, what are some of the, the ones that have really stuck out over the years to you? Well, we had one case um, early on in my career, and it was an innocent spouse case, and it was brand new to me. It was a woman who came to us. She had um, three, three children, one of whom was disabled, and her husband had died, and they were living in a trailer, kind of a rural area, and she had been working for a few years at, at the cafeteria at the school where her kids went. It was basically so she could work when they were in school, and they also, she got food, very low-income person, and the IRS had been taking her um, refunds every year. And she'd also gotten notice anyway, and it turned out she owed over $100,000. It was about $118,000 liability. No idea why, and so we dug in, and the husband, when he was alive, had run a construction business. And he was very controlling. Basically, she was isolated in this trailer. He kind of basically gave her, you know, here's $100 a week to pay for food for you and the kids. And, and there, it had been an abusive situation as well. There, you know, when she'd asked at one point about finances, he'd actually thrown a toaster at her. Um, luckily, it missed, but it hit the wall. So she was, you know, she had a lot. He had died, and it turned out he had been lying on their tax returns, as far as we could tell. He, he ran his own construction business, and she really had no idea what the money was, because he never shared it with her. There were separate bank accounts she did not have access to, and um, we think he'd been understating income and overstating expenses, but she she really didn't know. So we, we went down the innocent spouse route. It didn't go very well for her. It took a it had been about two years. We hadn't heard back. Um, we didn't get a very sympathetic person. Anyway, so we, we went round and round, and finally we came to the compromise that he had he had done these tax returns. He had done them as joint returns, but as we dug into it more, she hadn't she hadn't really signed them. He had kind of he had signed on her behalf, is what we came to. So we went back and we did original married filing separate returns for her for all the years at issue and she had no income because she was home and um, it they were processed through this kind of negotiation we did with the IRS counsel and she called us she got a $16,000 refund and it was wow. the money they had withheld since she'd been working and right. that was quite a case that was one of my first where this woman calls in tears and and she'd never seen that much money in her life. And she said, I, what, do, what do I do with this money? And I said, yeah. you, you go put it in your bank account. <laughs> <laughs> sure, and, yeah. you, and you buy something for you and your kids. And she, you know, she was so, it was just a really, yeah, I remember the student that took the call was sobbing on the phone. And she said, she wants to buy us something. And we said, oh, no, don't buy us anything. <laughs> right. We do not want anything from you. We just, you know, you just take care of yourself and your family. So that was that was a really interesting case because, you know, we thought the innocent spouse route would work. It didn't. So we had to get creative and say, okay, but it's it's not right that she should hmm. owe, owe this money. Um, so that was a really, that was a really notable case. Um, we just had kind of an easy, that was kind of a fun case. This woman came in and um, she had done her own tax return. She had um, made $4,500 and she had put that on the tax return and she put dot zero zero because she had zero cents. Hmm. The IRS 
whenever they did her paper return, put it in as $450,000 oh, of income, geez. and she owed $90,000. And so she came in completely confused, and that was actually a really easy case to fix because sure. we were able to, okay, here's her, <laughs> right. her income. But that was a, a pretty fun case that the students just loved because they were able to just do that right away. And, um, made a huge difference in this this woman's life so well, we've had all kinds of um yeah we've had a lot of identity theft cases lately and that's those have been very challenging um i don't i don't know if you see the same kind of thing but it's it's interesting to me to try to figure out what's, mm-hmm. what's going on. one particularly sad one was a student at our university who um was applying for his financial aid and it turned out there were these tax liabilities so they withheld his financial aid and it turned out somebody had been working using his social security card and um turned out it was his father his father had abandoned him and his mother when he was very young the father apparently um, had come from another country didn't have a social number had moved to florida and had been working using his son's social security number for all these years so the son turns 18 for financial, he gets his first job and has this, I don't know, like $180,000 tax liability. So, and the mother was able to say, oh, I, I think that's your father, because I heard that's, he'd had no contact with, with the son. Mm-hmm. Um, but the mother said, I heard he's been living in that part of the country. And anyway, so we were able to get that taken care of, get the um, get the university actually to even release his financial aid early, because, you know, those identity theft wow. cases can take a while. So that was a, a really rewarding situation. So. That's wild. I uh, I have had some similar cases to there, including, in fact, an identity theft case involving a mother who oh, uh-huh. was doing something like that, and, and we were able to sort that out. That was actually the case I had as a student oh. way back in 2016, but I, I agree that the identity theft is increasingly common, yeah. especially just with technology advancing and the online world growing and more things going online every day mm-hmm. but that those are some amazing stories and are those all cases that students worked on with you yes yes we have the students work on all the cases with me we're a little bit different since we don't have law students so they can't you know, be on the power of attorney or um, or any of those things but they they do um, all the client intake and they do a lot of the the work and a lot of the drafting of the memos and all of those things, but I have to closely closely supervise. And when we go to tax court, they're more of a, um, they're assisting me, so they're more as a paralegal type role as opposed to they're not standing up and, and arguing cases or things, but, but they are very helpful in you know, prepping and reviewing documents. And we've mm-hmm. had some cases, you know, dealing with Schedule C expenses, and they'll get there right there with their laptops and create an Excel spreadsheet, you know, <laughs> summarizing receipts and things like that. So, That's wonderful. Yeah. That's really good. And so I asked a question like this to Rob Nasso as well, and I'll ask you. So similar to his state of New York, California is also a high-tax state, at least compared to much of the rest of the country. So have you had cases with state income tax issues where you're able to help the person? Yes, yes. The California Franchise Tax Board is... Um, and they're very aggressive in their enforcement. So I find them to be much more aggressive than the IRS. Um, typically, if someone comes to us and they've been levied a bank account or something, it's been the state, not the IRS, is usually what we find. And 
Um, so we do handle a lot of those cases. You know, with, under our grant, we only take them if it's um, related to an IRS controversy case. We don't take standalone okay. state cases. Um, and yeah, we, we've done a lot of those. California does some interesting <laughs> things that the IRS doesn't do. Uh, they always tell clients they're a lot harder and we'll have the same client, same financial situation and we'll do an offer and compromise. It gets accepted no problem with the IRS. The California Franchise Tax Board says no way. You know? mm-hmm. um, a lot of it is California has a 20 year statute of limitations and I've had people like go I see examiners saying a lot could happen in 20 years so why should we compromise now Whereas wow. the IRS you know, it's only 10 and, and I think they have more fresh start incentives and things like that so um, but yeah no we've had a lot of franchise tax board issues and um, yeah, typically though we I would say 90% of our practice is the um, IRS and then about 10% is related franchise tax board do you have any taxpayer clients who would be in a position where they would at all be able to claim the SALT deduction and were affected at all by the limitation of that in the TCJA? I haven't handled any of those cases, no. I was wondering because I know, you know, we were, you were talking yesterday actually about how because California is a state with a high cost of living mm-hmm. that it the income question is a little bit different in terms of like who is low income because you could be making you know what seems like a lot of money but doesn't go mm-hmm. as far in California so I wondered if those folks would still have like some yeah. higher state and local tax obligations yeah. and thus be impacted yeah. but and but so but can you talk though about how uh, has that been a challenge there of like trying to fit within the 250 percent FPL it is. Limit. It's definitely a challenge because we do have people come to us who are over the limit, maybe not by very much. Um, you know, maybe they're $5,000 over, um, but they, they can't afford to hire an attorney because you know, if you look at their financial situation and what they're just paying in rent and, and food and gas, we have some of the highest gas costs, I think, in the, mm-hmm. in the country as well. So that is, so we have a lot of consultations. Um, so I... I do know that um, the National Taxpayer Advocate in Collins, I know she's from California and, and she's sympathetic to that. I don't know if it's something that they will happen, but it would be great to have some kind of, of change there. We um, we tend to, in those cases, we just do a more in-depth consultation. Like maybe we'll say, okay, we think, you know, okay, you're need to go to tax court mm-hmm. and kind of walk them through, here's what to expect, here's the proof you're going to need. If they're doing an offer and compromise, we might send them the forms, have them fill them out, and then say, you know, we're happy to review them before you submit them if you want. So we, we do things like that, that just to, because we know they need help. We know they can't afford to hire somebody, but... Um, that makes sense, yeah. So we, so we do some of that. We do, and I know this year, too, I did take on, I don't. I think I'm still under my limit, but I do tend to take on more people if they're over the, the limit just because they have a real interesting case or somebody who really needs us. And, yeah. And we just know, or maybe it's a really complicated tax court issue they can't handle on their own, and they're not going to be able to pay the hourly rate of a tax court lawyer. So, oh, sure, yeah. yeah so. so have you had any publications that you in which you've been published for tax uh, research and scholarship uh, in, including uh, ones where they involve issues that are per, of especially uh, important note for low-income taxpayers specifically 
Well, I it's not quite what you're asking, but I did write an article that I, I really enjoyed writing where I talked about um, tax issues being social justice issues. And I tried to trace how some of the major issues, whether it has been um, same-sex marriage or equality between the sexes, you know, things like that. A lot of these really key important cases, you know, were generated from tax court decisions. Because I, I think that's something, you know, I, I didn't know that till I entered the tax court world. I just thought tax returns and numbers, and I didn't really see, oh, you know, if you look back at you know, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and whatever, you know, her first cases, that was a that was a tax case. And you look at, you know, the Windsor decision, just other really key decisions that had huge impacts on social justice came out of tax court cases and even you know you look at the Affordable Care Act you know mm -hmm. that so I kind of I went through and I traced kind of key things you know whether you're looking at same-sex marriage or whether you're looking at equality between the sexes or affordable health care all of these generated from tax courts so so that was something that I did um, I had fun writing for our local bar journal <laughs> so. I'm literally Googling this right now so that I can read it later. It's in the, um, yeah, it was just for my local bar journal. I've written lots of articles for them, um, so. Nice. Well, I, I really, I really want to maybe even assign that now to oh. my students because I think they would love that. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that that's really neat that you say that because we're sitting here today actually on the one year anniversary of President Biden signing the Respect for Marriage Act, which essentially codified Windsor in that it repealed the Defense of Marriage Act formally so that if the Supreme Court were to ever overturn Obergefell, then at least the federal government would recognize all same-sex marriages still, so any marriage performed in a state where it would still be legal would still be recognized across the country and other states, and they would get the married filing jointly mm -hmm. tax benefits. But it's And so it's interesting, because I remember I, when I was applying for law school, when I had just gotten into Villanova Law, I went to a reception. This is back in June 2015, and mm -hmm. this was the month that Obergefell was decided. Yes. We knew it was, it was coming down soon. Uh -huh. And I remember I said to a professor there at Villanova Law, I'm interested in you know equal justice, social justice, mm -hmm. this kind of stuff, um, and, and helping poor people. And he said, well, you know, a lot of people don't realize, but tax is something that is very much relevant to that and, and he had said how a lot of people are interested increasingly in lgbtq rights and law around that and he had encouraged them to look into tax as something that is relevant there so i think we need to talk i mean i think as tax lawyers we i mean i know we come to these conferences and we know it in our community but i do feel like the general legal community maybe is not as well aware of that as, as they could be or you know entering law students i I had no idea as a law student. I took I took a tax law class, and it was just you know what is income and what is a return, <laughs> and it, it did not inspire me. If I had taken a class that looked at some of these other decisions, I I would have been much more interested. I think we did a little bit on ERISA too. You know, it just all mm -hmm. the, and that, those are all important things. But um, I think there's a whole other group out there that would be interested in tax law if they knew um, really. It's the biggest kind of social justice program too. Like things like even the earned income tax credit and things like that that I think people don't know that much about or understand. That's very true. And that's why this podcast is named Tax Justice Warriors, mm -hmm. which was given to us by the name from our uh, former host, William Schmidt, and a, a phrase that comes from uh, Passion Justice Warriors, which Francine Lipman calls uh -huh. all of us in the low-income taxpayer mm -hmm. kind of community. It is a social justice issue. and. 
I think that it's it's just it's notable because as you say so much of the anti-poverty framework is within the tax code and you can see how what things Congress has prioritized and not over the years well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> thank you so much for listening to Tax Justice Warriors. You can visit our website at taxjusticewarriors.com. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. The views expressed on this podcast are not official opinions of the IRS, the Low Income Taxpayer Clinic Program, or the employers or people who spoke on this program. Your tax situation is unique. So do not take the statements on this program as legal advice. Consult with your tax professional if you seek specific advice. There are now three things that are certain in life. Death, taxes, and your subscription to the Tax Justice Warriors podcast.